Hello, I'm Yanis Varoufakis. I'm at Novara Media, and I have a message for you. The best way of uh, underpinning any kind of potential resistance to a very toxic establishment without being populist anti-establishment and by supporting good, rational, humanist causes is to support left-wing media like Novara Media. Novara Media and all such media need your support because they certainly do not have the support of the establishment. Cape diem. Today's guest needs no introduction. Simply put, he's one of the world's most famous philosophers. Slavoj Žižek has written three books coming out this year. This is one of them. And it asks a pretty critical but simple question, namely, are we, humanity, heading towards catastrophe and what can we do about it? But before we have that discussion, I want to give you an update. Here at Navarra, we're looking to gain 5,000 new paying supporters before the end of 2023. And good news, we've just passed the 2,000 mark. So if you like our work here at Navarra, and if you want to help build people-powered media from our daily show on YouTube to our articles, podcasts, and downstream as well, then support our work by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support. We ask that you pay as much or as little as you can. It can be just one pound a month, but that monthly payment really helps because we can build and plan and coordinate with an eye towards the future and helping create people-powered media. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Slavoj Žižek. Slavoj Zizek, welcome to Downstream. I'm proud to be here. I mean it seriously, because we live in... Everybody knows this, but one has to emphasize. We live in dangerous times, and precisely in such times, thinking is needed. People are totally wrong who think now times are quiet. No, then you are too lazy to think. In... in the situations of urgency, which is today's situation at different levels, I think, this is what makes many traditional Marxists hate me, I think the time is to turn around Marxist thesis 11. It's not philosophers have only interpreted the world, we have to change it. It's maybe in the 20th century, we tried to change the world too fast without really understanding it. The time is to interpret, understand the world. So that's why I am glad to be here, even if I will not maybe convince many people, I hope I will make them reflect, think. Is that why after the Arab Spring and all the uprisings of the early 2010s, you went away and wrote a thousand page book on Hegel? Because it was precisely then that you had to do the hard thinking about, about the world. Because this is a very different book. That was very abstract. I loved it, by the way. And yeah. this is obviously very concrete. So what kinds of thinking do you mean? I also mean that uh, very concrete situations need also very abstract thinking. Not to go into that Arab Spring. Uh, the lesson of Arab, 
Arab Spring, it's a very sad and interesting one. It's the same lesson as that of Syriza, which was a miracle, but it went wrong and so on. Here I'm Hegelian. Hegel is not this stupid absolute idealist who thinks at the end everything will be, everything will turn out well, blah, blah. Hegel is on the contrary, obsessed, if you really read Hegel's historical analysis, with one thing which is needed more than ever today. How? Something that was originally a good idea, almost with a kind of a necessity as a rule, turns wrong. You have French Revolution, freedom, bloop, terror. You get October Revolution, in spite of all problematic things that Lenin did at the beginning. No, it was not just, as some people think, a Bolshevik coup d'etat. It was a white popular movement. Ten years on, you get Comrade Stalin, nightmare embodied. You know, don't we need a lot this today? This not simply pessimist spirit, but what I, without shame, call moderate conservative Spirit. By this, I mean, I'm still a communist, but you can use this, I repeat it all the time, a moderately conservative communist. Yes, communist, which means for me, obviously, we're in deep crisis, radical measures will be needed. But at the same time, this is what I admire with intelligent, moderate conservatives. Think well how things can turn wrong. And for me, the Arab Spring was one of the effects of this. Even that's why it may surprise you. I never fall when I was young. My God, I'm old like Earth. I was already there. 68, the big revolution. What was the actual result of it? All its goals turned wrong. Uh, this was the first, it was the attack against alienated factories, this uh, uh, serial uh, work, you just work in line automatically. They were against this. For, nice. What do we get? Do, are we getting today? Precarious work, total uncertainty, and so on. It's even worse. They were against alienated uh, 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 this uh, uh, oppression of women and so on. We get today's promiscuous sexuality, which in a way objectifies women and others even more. Education against alienated universities, yes. And now we have, we are justified to have a nostalgia towards this big alienated university, you get just quick specialized courses, learn quickly for this specialty, for that. You see, that was was needed in 68. Yes, a beautiful project, but think about how it can turn wrong. So when you hear the catchphrase, which is from 68, of course, demand the impossible, you say no. Do not demand the impossible. Demand the, uh, it demand, demand yeah. the very possible. Yeah, it, uh, yeah. I would, again, as a philosopher, I like to complicate things. I would say like this, what do we mean by impossible? The fir my first reaction to, what, to this point is to focus on what counts as possible and what counts as impossible. It's not as clear as it may appear. Listen, today we are perceiving as possible 
this singularity, artificial intelligence, we will lose our individual mind, blah, blah. That's possible. But till, till the epidemic, to raise taxes for 2%, oh, it would ruin our economy, it's impossible. If there is one good lesson from the epidemic is that there were a lot of measures, like billions distributed to ordinary people, almost in a communist way. Trump had to act as a communist. You remember, every family got a check for Trump. So, you know, first, let's be very specific what we consider as possible or as impossible in a certain situation. Maybe we should change the view here. As with artificial intelligence, of course, we are approaching a breathtaking change. But... I think that all the projections that we have of artificial intelligence taking over, on the one hand, the pessimist projection, we will be totally regulated by, by mega machines, we will lose our individuality. On the opposite hand, it will be like theology actualized. We will become one we got. They are obvious nonsense. I don't know what will happen. I know this will not happen. So, you see, that's my first uh, reaction, that be precise, uh, something, declaring something possible or impossible is always also, I'm sorry to use this old obscene term, an ideological category. In a certain situation, it appears like this. Did you always want to be famous? Because sorry? Did you always want to be famous? Because you have this wonderful life for most people. Um, where you travel the world, you talk about interesting things, highly educated man, you can have an opinion on films, people love it, you can have an opinion on politics, people let me, love it. Let me, let me make a step further here. Please. Uh, 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 yeah, but I go dialectically to the end here. I even have an opinion on films that I haven't seen, you know, like what I wrote about Barbie and Oppenheimer, it's now a public secret that when I wrote that, I haven't seen the films, you know. I'm a here Hegelian, you know, that famous Hegel's stance, uh, if, if reality doesn't fit what I proclaim to be, the notional truth, so much worse for reality. And I stand by this. After writing my piece, I was convinced to see just Oppenheimer. And I, I should have been even tougher for the film. Yeah. I'm now a little bit repeating myself of what I said at other places, but, uh, you know, Oppenheimer is a good film, the political part, you know, all uh -huh. that committee, how Oppenheimer was manipulated doubly. But I hate that spiritual part, Bhagavad Gita and so on. Isn't that horrible? To repeat a story that I'm selling all the time, you remember the movie Oppenheimer caused a scandal in India? I didn't know this. Yeah, you know why? Because when Florence Pugh and Oppenheimer uh, make love for the first time, I think she asks him, or the other way around, I don't know, to read Bhagavad Gita. And the Indians exploded. Dirty sexual act. How mm. can I agree with Indians, but in the opposite sense. A beautiful sexual act, and they spoil it with reading parts from one of the most obscene, disgusting, sacred books. Bhagavad Gita was the book which Heinrich Himmler had all the time in his pocket, because this was his reply to how to kill the Jews. His 
ethical problem of Himmler was, yes, we are doing horrible things, killing Jewish children, uh, mothers. How can we do it without becoming beasts ourselves? His answer was Bhagavad Gita. You know, this acting through a distance, all, all that pseudo-oriental uh, uh, bullshit, you know. So, ah, but back to your point, fame. Listen, don't you think that I am... I can even give you a list of how I'm very suicidal, systematically ruining my general acceptance or fame. It began uh, with uh, my critique of uh, uh, cancel culture and political correctness. That was a big deal. Sorry? That was a big deal. Yeah, but do you know how many people now dismiss me as a secret right-winger and so on? Although I always emphasize I'm absolutely for all the goals of LGBTQ, and now I don't know how many letters you have to... LGBTQ, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's longer now, the latest. But, uh, and uh, cancel culture and so on, I see. But what worries me is that the way this is practiced, it's deeply counterproductive. Because I think what... I don't know, don't ask me how to do it. I don't know. But isn't it crucial for the left, instead of getting caught in this self-divisive censoring, you know, oh, you use that word, what if it's still secretly racist and so on, to think in terms of broad coalition. For example, I think it was none other than Bernie Sanders who at some point said this. He said, I was always radically pro-abortion, but it's not enough to say just this. No, we shouldn't make any compromise here. But what if we think in these terms? First, we should inform people how wrong this idea is uh, uh, propagated all the time by those who oppose abortion, as if abortion is typical for uh, middle-class career women who don't want to ruin their career. No, these statistics are wrong. These famous middle-class promiscuous women, they know how to ca take care of themselves. Abort the majority of abortions came from poorer women who already have two, three children, cannot do more. So the way I would address people who are uh, against abortion, I would tell them, okay, we all agree abortion in itself is not a nice thing. We, I am not for abortion because I think it's a pleasurable, penetrating experience for a woman. It's the opposite. But I would say, what if we try to, you keep your position, me, mine, but can't we think in the terms of how to make abortion less needed, less attractive, better health care, uh, uh, more care, help for the families, and so on, and so on. And here, this was Bernie Sanders' answer. You see, we should always focus on this, how to build a broad coalition. Seek converts, not traitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. why do you think the left, because this is something you talk about in the book, I mean, you basically sort of project two poles of attraction politically, far-right ultranationalism, and obviously far less powerful, but you talk about an extremist form of left-wing, quote-unquote, woke politics. Where does the latter come from? Why has it emerged? I think that... Uh 
still, here I remain some kind of a very problematic for some people Marxist. I think that the, as it were, the key to the crisis is nonetheless that there is something not any longer functioning well with, I'm sorry to use this term because it's a jargon term, with global capitalism. Obviously, this was the, uh, made clear by the 2008 financial crisis and so on. And I think that while, of course, I'm here very open when, for example, women's rights are concerned or gay rights or whatever, we, if I may count myself still as some kind of a radical leftist, we should, of course, make tactical alliance with center-left, politically correct liberals to, to counteract direct racism, anti-feminism, and so on. But at the same time, and again, Bernie Sanders made this clear, at the same time, we should never forget that Trump is not an original fact. He didn't fall on our happy earth out of context. All of a sudden, everything was functioning nice, then, uh, this. No, he reacted, or he reacted to a deep crisis felt by millions of ordinary people. He exploited this in a way which was totally reprehensible, you know. So, again, totally against him, but the key is in the malfunctioning of our global capitalism. And I don't have even here a clear answer. It can be proven economically how disparities are growing. growing. For example, I'm here, I will say something with which I hope we will all agree because it's a very center liberal common sense. The, the basic condition of normal life is this safety of social order. And I'm saying this as a leftist. Mm. I was never fascinated by this big bullshit, you know. Ooh, Tahrir Square or Syriza, one million people on the market, on the main place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, uh, that's my old joke, probably you know it. I am the, the morning after leftist. How will ordinary people feel the change when the enthusiasm is over? How will their life, ordinary daily life, how will they be affected? That's why I got many hatred from uh, French leftists. You remember some two, three months ago, there were those big demonstrations. And I said but I am more for law and order there because I read analysis. You know, those demonstrations were basically destroying things, cars, stores, mostly, almost exclusively in the poor suburbs. And uh, uh, I think that's one of the resources of Trump. We should listen to this cares of the ordinary people who like security and so on, which is why. Let me give you a very problematic example along the same lines. I repeat it all the time, but I think it's worth repeating. 
Recently, I talked with a lady from ANC, African National Congress, and asked her, is this all this bullshit true that, you know, what I read in the media, South Africa is approaching a failed state. And she told me, she, radical left, is something so sad. She told me the predominant atmosphere now among the poor blacks in South Africa is nostalgia for apartheid. Isn't this horrible? She said life was more stable because it was a police state. Standard of living was the same, maybe even slightly higher. And this is, you see, the dangerous situation where you have all these racist and falsely anti-racist temptations. You know, for example, the anti-racist temptation is Mugabe way. You have new black government, which is utterly corrupted. So you play the game of, let's blame the white people because they still control the situation and so on and so on. Uh, my standard line here is, maybe you know it, you saw the movie V for Vendetta. Yeah. In my Stalinist universe, that movie would be burned publicly. Why? Because it ends, you know, the end scene. Mm. The people occupy the parliament win. My standard joke is I would sell my mother into slavery to see V for Vendetta part two. But what will then they do the next day the leftist Mm. in power? How will they change the power structure? What will they do? Nationalize things or what? That's what the left should focus on. Enough of this uh, uh, enthusiastic freedom and so on and so on. I am shocking as it may sound a law and order leftist. Our promise should be not this enthusiastic freedom and so on. My, our promise should be we will change in a way that you will feel the change, the daily life. And th- cases where this succeeds, where they achieve this, the left, are very rare. For example, in Latin America, The only clear case is, but now maybe things are going worse, is, I admit this, I was linked with them, uh, Morales, Linera, Lucho Arce, Bolivia. Morales was 12 years in power. The standard of ordinary people went up, but nonetheless, they did it in such an intelligent way. They didn't scare out the capital, and they... You remember, then there was a coup d'etat and they were even re-elected. I like this type of pragmatic left who is not, which is not caught into their own slogans and then take the easy way when things go wrong. Oh, we will blame the imperialist enemy, you know. So, so was the Russian and French revolutions a mistake then? Because obviously those weren't law and order leftists. Those were massive ruptures, particularly the French Revolution, against an entire here, ah, mode ah, of being. Here, I, uh, it may surprise you. First, I don't have, let's begin with Russian Revolution. Uh, I, I'm very critical of Lenin, but nonetheless, as a Hegelian, I don't buy this Trotskyite story. You know that if only Lenin were to survive for three, four years, he would have made a pact with uh, with with Trotsky throughout Stalin, and then mm. then what? Mm. 
big socialist democracy, no, maybe a little bit better, but nonetheless, and I'm ready to go even further back here, it's clear that I don't care if he wanted he Lenin this or not, but Leninism obviously did open up the space for Stalinism. You cannot say it was just a bad surprise. And you can find this clearly in the ambiguities of Lenin's desperate book, State and Revolution. As for the French Revolution, I'm a little bit... My, it's my first puberty love. I don't want to renounce it for Jacobins. Let's make things clear. For me, the great, one of the greatest ethical figures, or two of them rather, in world history are Robespierre and Saint-Just. Read their works. Don't listen to that bullshit. First, they say the horror was the liquidation of Danton. I spoke, I forgot his name, with a, at a round table, with a British historian who said they were right. Now, in some old British archives, they found it. Danton was financed by the, by the British, you know. But I want to say another thing. In the, they saved France with winning the war, the Jacobins. Then, in the last three, four months of his rule, Robespierre was obsessed with the idea how to end the terror. He saw this deadly machinery is getting dangerous. So just follow detailed history. All his last purges were against leftists who were usually at the same time corrupted and wanted more terror, like Joseph Fouché the evil embodied, who did horrible things for Jacobins, then he was the minister of interior for Napoleon, then he turned against Napoleon. So uh, uh, this was the big problem of Robespierre and Saint-Just. They were already practically ignored by the Jacobins and by the Gironde, the other pole. And they desperately tried to appeal to those lower mid-level, neither left nor right uh, uh, members. And this is why, it's very tragic, uh, Robespierre knew what is happening. In his last speech in the convent, or the one the day before, he says openly, this is my testament. I know I will be killed soon. And there is some so wonderful letter where he says, he, was, he says, I know where history is going, towards a new imperial figure like Napoleon. And he says, shall we, Jacobins, follow that path? No, I would rather lose my head. So if you read it really closely, uh, Robespierre is one of the rare cases of a guy who, yes, entered a little bit close to the abyss of terror, but then saw clearly the horror and consciously risked his life, not even risk, he knew he is lost to, to stop it. But the, the point you made about being a law and order communist, yeah. which I understand in, in 2023, but obviously this idea of revolution is so 
critical to leftist understandings of how progress has simply happened throughout history. That can be the Haitian Revolution, the Bolivarian Revolution, etc., etc. Bolivarian Revolution, you mean Claves? No, no, the original one. Simon ah, the original one. Because Claves was was a lost was a lost cost from the beginning. No, I mean the, the literal liberation of you know um, African slaves yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah. in South South America. No, I know that story in detail. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah but maybe the viewers don't. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I'm I didn't sorry. make that yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Were those mistakes? Should th those not have happened? No, clearly, but clearly no. there's a place for huge disruptive there politics is, in history. There is, but I think that I'm here simply a pessimist. That uh, uh, the way Hegel saw it correctly, no, you have to go through this terrorist moment, which fails, and then the true struggle begins. Will anything good? survive from this. Hegel saw this very clearly. Well, he condemned the French terror, but he made it very clear that nonetheless, a more liberal democratic order was possible only through that excessive uh, moment. Or to give you another example that I like, I read a book, I forget which one, Old Senile, which deals with this problem and says, even if not actual violence, in a, at moments of radical emancipation, you at least need a threat of more radical, deadly mm. measures. For example, this guy looks at, uh, uh, the in the 60s, Martin Luther King uh, for black, full black emancipation, the struggles. And he said, why did Martin Luther, more or less, the struggle goes on, succeed? Because behind him, there was a threat of much more violent, radical blacks. Look at Mandela. The apartheid regime made a deal with him because they were afraid. There were much more radical blacks waiting, getting ready for much more radical measures. So I'm here simply a pessimist. I think that, yes, of course, violent measures explode, but then uh, what comes after is usually quite often a little bit of a better state, but in the second uh, moments later, like even 68, I'm, as I already said, critical of it. But nonetheless, look, how we talk about women today. This is one of the lasting legacies of 68. Forget about that sexual liberation and so on, that was commodified and so on. But the way we talk about gays, the way we talk about women, our sensitivity for racism and so on, this precisely became a moment of our daily ideology, this time in a good sense. By ideology, I mean how we spontaneously experience the situation. So no, I, but now things become more sensitive because I think we have to judge it case by case. For example, it was not violent, but it was a rupture. The only really big thing that recently happened, and I hope we will all agree here, is something incredible. It's the Iranian, after that Kurdish girl mm -hmm. was killed, 
by the Islamic police, whatever, for not uh, having a, uh, wearing a scarf. It was something incredible. Millions of people, first women, then ordinary people, not just Muslims. You know why I like this? Because this was not the boring, politically correct feminism, you know, of, you know, are you he or she or they. This was a big social explosion and women's struggle become a focal point to which all other struggles, even the struggles of Muslim men, attached themselves. This is how we have to learn from Iran. We caught in our sectional struggles, like, you know, the ones between, between uh, trans and turf uh, 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 among feminists and so on. Uh, 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 otherwise, uh, like... <laughs> Uh, sorry, what was your question? I lost the territory. We, we were saying about, uh, you said on the one hand, you're a law and order communist. Yeah. But then on the other hand, you're saying that like, um, well, implicit within that for me is that you basically would discard any possibility of change through revolution. But now you're saying that actually- No, no, change, no, no, no. I think, no, 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 no. I, I just think we should judge it from case to case. For example, let's go to the- burning, literally burning Gaza question today, Hamas. I was boot out, attacked all around Germany, really cover story, for just saying that I unconditionally reject what Hamas did. And this was not an empty phrase, because my Israeli friends who are left there, close to Palestinians, told me they knew people in that kibbutz and raving sure. part. They were the best of Israelis in the sense of how to relate with Arabs. And it's clear that Hamas' attack on them was destined not so much to win over Israel, but for decades in future to block any chance of peace. It was a war to make sure that there will not be a peace. So there I am absolutely unambiguously against Hamas. What I'm just saying, adding, and for this I was vilified, is not relativizing this attack of Hamas, but inquire into that you cannot even understand it without. Now everybody is talking Hamas versus Israel. What about 4 million Palestinians? Is there any perspective for them? Like, you know, I have connections there on the West Bank with Jews and with Palestinians. And I'm not saying anything subversive. You know that Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, said recently Israel has to stop this daily violence against West Bank Palestinian farmers, burning their fields, killing them, and so on and so on. That's even... Liberal media now in Israel uh, admit this. Here, in this concrete, situ concrete situation, I think that the Hamas-style violence, and don't forget that Hamas was, everybody admits this now, was not created but helped a lot by Israel because they thought if, if Palestinians are split between West Bank, which is more PLO, secular, and Gaza, more Muslim fanatic, they will not be united, so this will postpone 
a two-state solution because mm. they don't. So what I'm saying is that in this case, concretely, I, I don't think violence helps. It can bring a catastrophe to all sides, to Jews also. My fear is this one, that because of what Israel now is doing in Gaza, this will give a new push, everybody knows this, I'm not saying anything original, to anti-Semitism all around the world. Let's be frank, till now, anti-Semitism was more or less limited, not quite, but let's say to European and Middle East world. Now, we live in what with horror I call unholy alliances. For example, example I repeat all the time, Uganda. You know this, they now established a law with absolute majority, only one member of parliament abstained, to criminalizing uh, homosexuality in a crazy way. If you are caught in a homosexual act, you can be put to death mm. and so on. But you know how they justified it? That this is a struggle against ideology of colonialism, homosexuality. So what I am afraid is that, and this is what Putin is aiming at, is to create a kind of a very perverted anti-Western coalition where, again, to be against feminism will be part of anti-colonial struggle. To advocate the prohibition of homosexuality will be against the will be to fight against imperialism and the same with anti-semitism uh, this and this makes me so scared that's why my greatest fear is are what i call that's why i mentioned them as was attacked what i call uh, um, literally zionist anti-Semites. People, and Trump was this. He supported Israel there. You take uh, Golan Heights, they moved there. But at the same time, in the United States, he was supported by so many anti-Semitic organizations, grassroots, like Proud Boys and so on. And there is a long history. Do you know the guy, Monster, Breivik, the guy who killed uh, ten years ago, or when in Oslo, and perfect, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could pronounce it more correctly. It's very interesting. My Norwegian friends send me pages from his thousand pages crazy manuscript, where he says, "In the Middle East, there we should totally support Israel. We should push Israel into destroying the uh, Aqsa, that big mosque, build a new temple there, because they are a wall." Keep, uh, keeping barbarians from Europe. Here, Jews are a problem. And you know who is I, repeating in all my talks, because it's wonderful, wonderful in a horrifying sense. You know who is one of the original authors of this idea? The horror itself, Heinrich Heydrich, the father of Holocaust. In '35, he wrote, there are two types of Jews. Zionist Jews who want to move to Palestine and assimilation Jews. Assimilation Jews, we kill them. They don't. Zionist Jews, they're potentially our friends and partners. We should. No, my idea is that uh, it will sound so naive, but uh, I like Jews here. Mm. Not that they shouldn't move somewhere if they want. Jews are, for me, 
an extremely important part of our culture. Completely I, agree. I, I cannot even imagine, let's be concrete, modern European enlightenment mm. without Jews. No, it's true. Because it was the Jews without having a specific place here that were, as it were, by their position forced into universalism, you know, universal reason independently of, they embody with their objective social position, European Jews, what Kant called public use of reason. Immanuel Kant. And Kant didn't mean by this public in the sense of university and so on. No. For Kant, private use of reason is when reason argues for the state institutions. Public use of reason is when people meet outside state institutions and debate. And this wouldn't have been possible without the Jews. So I want Jews here. I have an answer for people who, I don't know why, accuse me of, you are maybe between the lines unaware of anti-Semitic. My answer is much worse than the one, you know, this anti-Semitic classical line, but some of my best friends are Jews. No, my line is almost all of my friends are Jews, you know. And the other are Palestinians. There are many liberal Palestinians. There is hope there. Do you remember? You see, I don't read enough of this in our newspapers. Do you remember about, just before the war, a month and a half ago, I think, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of PLO, made a very bad, tasteless, racist statement that Jews basically deserved the Holocaust because they were so much involved in financial dealings and so on and so on. My answer is, of course, they were involved because they were prohibited to own land and so on mm. and so on. They were pushed into it. But my point is that, do you know that over 100 of Palestinian intellectuals from Israel and West Bank from United States immediately wrote a letter condemning Habas, uh, uh, Abbas for totally unacceptable anti, uh, anti-Semitic uh, statement and so on. Please, so counterattack. No, no, the thing you said about the European Jew is so important. And for me, the, the, the European Jew is coterminous with the rise of the idea of a cosmopolitan and cosmopolitanism. Not it's, just, uh, uh, but like, it's the key element. Yeah. Without Jews, there wouldn't have been. No, I agree. Yeah, but yeah. The, So then the question is, does the demise of European Jewry, and, and, and this is a modern phenomenon over the last 100, 150 years, the idea of Jewishness being coterminous with Israel and yeah. the state of Israel, does that also go hand in hand with the demise of cosmopolitanism? Is that an idea now yeah. from a, from a previous century? Yes, but... Uh, let me do something pretty boring so that we just don't remain in a political anecdotes. Please. I, I will just give you a very brief version of a speech where I succeeded in the sense of offending all sides. I gave a speech in a big Tel Aviv a couple of years ago library, and people mostly there were, uh, uh, were uh, uh, um, BDS pro-Palestinian Jews, minority. And I disappointed them also because, for example, to make my position clear, I was asked about uh, uh, BDS, boycott, divest, and so on. And I said that I am ready to follow it up to a point on one condition, 
that it doesn't call for violence and that it's mixed Palestinians and Jews who organize it. But at the same time, I said that it's still dangerous for Europe because with all my sympathy for Palestinians, I know what is happening in Europe now. Anti-Semitism is effectively exploding in Europe. Exploding. Exploding. That's a big word. Yeah, it's a big word, but uh, you know, uh, like what broke my heart is that uh, uh, when I see, and in Germany there were cases of pro-Palestinian but really anti-Semitic demonstrations where extreme left collaborated with extreme right. That's the end of the world for me. Because now I will say something crazy. I still think that although there is leftist anti-Semitism in the sense that people who proclaim themselves leftists are anti-Semitic, this is an absolutely reliable, unmistakable sign of the fact that something is wrong with their leftism. Look at when the left becomes anti-Semitic. Lenin, it's ridiculous to say this. Look, everybody knows. Lenin's Politburo, the ruling clique, forget about democracy, the eight, ten people who run. More than half of them were Jews. You know? mm. <laughs> Which is why in the early anti-Soviet, in the 1920s, the standard reproach was the, that Soviet Union is a Jewish state, you know. Then, Comrade Stalin enters the scene, anti-Semitism, a discreet one, but nonetheless enters, enters the scene. And it's everywhere like this, like Hugo Chavez, when things began to get wrong in Venezuela, he made a couple of statements blaming the Jews. You know who had to correct him? Although I don't like him. Fidel Castro said, don't talk like this. Jews suffered a lot and so on. So for me, whenever there is a left wing or something that appears to be you, a left wing anti-Semitism, it means something is deeply wrong with that left. You know why? For a very simple reason. For me, the message of authentic left is not, let's say, a nice dream. I'm a big poor proletarian or whatever we call it today. You are a dirty bourgeois. I already see here the traces of the rope. That we <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like uh, an authentic leftist always knows that the enemy is not you as such. The enemy is the system. Engels went to the end. Engels, even in one of his late Friedrich Engels of Marx, in one of his late letters, he says, my God, some factory manager's owner are my, are my best friends. Where was Engels? In Manchester, I think, and so on. So uh, every authentic left does not personalize the enemy. It's the system, which even, as Marx put it repeatedly, forces the bourgeoisie, otherwise they go bankrupt, to act, to act the way they do. Anti-Semitism is the exact opposite. You want to keep the idea of our society as an organic, harmonious whole. So why are there tensions? Ah, because a foreign intruder, the Jews in this case, but another thing I wanted to go on to make this more clear. It's very deep, profound, 
I'm not kidding, what you said about the violence of modern anti-Semitism. In my speech in Tel Aviv, I went into this and nobody liked it, but it's very... You, you know uh, uh, that till vaguely French Revolution, the focus of anti-Semitism was to convert the Jews. Mm. And then the problem was, the main form of anti-Semitism was Okay, they converted, but are they secretly still practicing their rituals? Did they really convert? You know, that was the problem. So, Jews were considered as people who blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, ah, I must tell a story, sorry, a brief detour, which listeners or those who watch us will like. It's, it makes me infinitely sad how the fake Western Christian support for Israel now remains within this space. In my own, as Donald Trump would have called it, shithole of a country, Slovenia, uh, there were many attacks on my speech in Frankfurt and at the book fair, and one idiot who attacked me totally defends the Jews, but wait to the punchline. He said, I'm totally wrong. This, 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 all this is good for Israel. Then he ends up, <clears throat> but there is one scene which is more ominous than all that I reproach to present government of Israel, which is inexcusable for the Jews, that they don't recognize Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was like a bad joke, you know. Mm. And that's what all those right-wing fundamentalists who support Israel are doing. They are for Israel because they count on Armageddon and so on. But let's return to the crucial point. You know what's the tragedy of French Revolution? Even Napoleon, while well, he did horrors in uh, up there in Haiti, no, down there, okay, on the other side, he did some good thing. He gave to Jews full citizens' rights and so on. But uh, 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 the result was a surprising one. It was that, and I even don't understand it well, although I should, because it's some kind of a mechanism explained by a psychoanalysis. You need psychoanalysis, and I, although I refer to it, I'm not good in, uh, at it. Namely, the result was a much stronger form of anti-Semitism. It was no longer we should convert the Jews, but we should be careful, do they? Did they really convert or do they secretly remain Jews? No, it became uh, genetic, biological. The idea was that in their very basic identity, be it biological or spiritual, Jews are doomed, so you cannot convert them, the only way is to annihilate them. And you have, like, the worst, uh, you have in Wagner, this in Wagner's operas, the main hero of Wagner's operas is basically the eternal Jew, even if it's a good positive hero, but the eternal Jew who longs to die for death. As the, uh, you have, this is the most disgusting ideology of 19th century, even this idea of, Jews are longing to die. They know that only death can redeem them. And so, isn't this something so sad that precisely with 
French Revolution, civil emancipation of Jews, and so on, this much worse, let's call it biological or destiny-style anti-Semitism, where you tell, for example, it's a disgusting, tragic letter a Jewish admirer wrote to Wagner. He said, I admire your work. What do you expect me? What would you advise me to do as a Jew? Wagner's answer is, I'm sorry, kill yourself. That's the only thing uh, you can do. I mean, uh, this is, I think, the first sign that uh, enlightenment already in the early 1800s even was slowly shifting towards strong nation states And I think that, although I'm still Eurocentric, in the sense that I think enlightenment is the greater things we have and so on, I think that this legacy of uh, modern Europe, strong sovereign nation states, is the catastrophe today. Look, first, I think that those who criticized most Eurocentrism follow it in this strong nation state. Look at Turkey. All the horrors that they did, the Armenian genocide and so on, it was not done by old conservative Turks. It was done by young Turks who wanted to change Turkey into a modern sovereign nation state. Look at China. I read wonderful analysis by Chinese half-dissidents, guys who want to be a Marxist but are with one leg already in prison, to put it like this, who says that the problem today with China, although they like to emphasize we are more than nation-state, we are a civilization, no, de facto they are now obsessed with becoming a large nation-state. That's why they want to Chinify, or how to put it? Maybe like Sinify. Sinify, yes, sorry. Sinify uh, uh, Uyghurs, Muslims there, or Tibetans, and so on. Is not Modi doing the same? Erase the Muslims. There, I'm absolutely pro-Muslim in India. I was even advised, like, not to travel to India now. <laughs> It's dangerous for me. So, uh, I think that today, precisely, when... Isn't it clear that all the problems that we have can only be solved in a, some kind of global approach? You cannot solve ecological threats by this state is doing this in another sovereign state. No, we will be compelled to develop mechanisms which will, be, which will have a status of not just a matter of choice, but which will be able measures to over right, how do you call it, cancel over the interest of the individual sovereign states. I don't, I don't see another solution. Sorry, now you... To, dist to distill what you just said, so basically we've had a universalization of the bad parts of the Enlightenment, i.e. a proliferation of nation states, hard nation states. Yeah, but not only this. There is also human rights and so on. Precise, no, of course, but like we've had, a, we've had a universalization of the bad bit and that's really coming to the fore in the last few years, like you said, Modi, Putin, etc. Um, yes, that's the idea. Sorry, very, yes, please. That's, sorry, just to interrupt you, but to agree with you. Precisely those who are most vocal in criticism of Eurocentrism are taking over the worst part of European legacy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's very astute. But then I suppose the counter argument would be that democracy has only ever gone hand in hand with 
an idea of national popular sovereignty. And often that was the case with regards to anti-colonial movements in the 30s, the 40s, etc. So the idea that you're resisting a greater power, well, how did you do that? Often you mobilized through that idea of nation, shared language. That's a mega problem. That's what I would call in this cheap TV shows way a $1 million winning question, you know. And I think uh, there are options. I don't agree with the predominant answer today, which is, and I, after the Soviet-style communism was discredited, even in China, now to tease you a little bit more, uh, uh, I got now, no wonder I'm half prohibited in China now, because uh, I read some books, they are more right-wing, but they make a point that the secret of what is happening now in China is that what Deng Xiaoping really did is to change China, to put it in brutal, simplistic terms, from communism to fascism. Fascism means, in contrast to communism, where you nationalize economy, you allow a certain degree of free market economy, but you have a strong nation state, one party, non-democratic state to control it and so on and so on. And I think that a new forum, I don't like to call it the old fascism because it's not as simple as that, but something which nonetheless adopts this idea of basic fascism, which is what? Conservative modernization. We need capitalist dynamics, which is the only one that works, but we need to control it, and to control it, you turn to your own national tradition. That's what is... Isn't that just market socialism, though? Uh, it, again, depends on, uh, uh, like, uh, who runs the show. In the sense of... Uh, 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 market socialism, it's an ambiguous term, you mm, know. Of course. The first, in what sense? Sorry, I'm not bluffing now. <laughs> uh, the first thing I want to say is that what is happening today, my God, I don't 100% agree with Varoufakis. But did he you criticize read? him a few times in the book, huh? Yeah, but no, I have now some problems with it because he was, for my taste, too much into this slightly anti-Ukrainian, right. you know, like you... Uh, no, no, I think I resist calls for peace there. It's horrible for some leftists. That's where I lose my fame. <laughs> because, uh, uh, you know, let's be concrete. Isn't it that today to say Ukraine needs peace means it's strictly equivalent to saying Russia should be allowed to keep what it occupied? But I suppose the question is then, what if Ukraine can't win? If you think that Ukraine can't win, which is a reasonable position, one can agree or disagree, but yeah, yeah. if they can't win, then clearly it's going to have to be some kind of negotiated okay, settlement. But the first thing to do, ah, I hope you agree, is to recognize, that's my answer to guys who ask this question, that, but are we aware that Ukraine at least didn't lose? No, it hasn't. It's, yes. Only because of our help. To have this position now, kind of a World War I stalemate, it's precisely because we were helping Ukraine. So at least retroactively, all those who are for peace should acknowledge that we are in this position to say at least Ukraine have a chance to survive only because we were helping Ukraine. 
because it's uh, it's terribly depressive this i but i'm also critical of ukraine incredible corruption there and so on i did this uh, i i but uh, sorry another thing i wanted when you say market socialism mm. this term is for me a little bit too vague in what sense i agree with varoufakis although i wouldn't yet i'm not sure should we really use i wouldn't yet use the term feudalism but Uh, this uh, his idea of i think the techno feudalism techno feudalism yeah. now he has some good points which i like which are i like his basic thesis that wait a minute stop just criticizing global capitalism something new is emerging today which it's doubtful if we can still call it capitalism the way we knew it you have a conglomerate of states and mega corporations who exploit at the same time the under quotation marks normal productive capitalists and the workers so a new form of power is emerging and i've written in different terms about it where i agree with some italian neo-marxists who are very critical of marx who claim that The basic fact of today's global economy is that uh, rent is returning. You know, the classical history is capitalism begin with rent. You own land like the feudal master owns the rent. You uh, so owns land, you pay him rent, whatever. But now we are returning to rent in what sense? We have now this mega corporation from Amazon to uh, uh, Bill Gates and so on. They own our commons in the commons in the sense of the space we used to exchange, communicate. You know how did that's my classic example. Bill Gates become one of the wealthiest persons not by ultra exploiting his workers. He even pays them maybe reasonably well. It is because the way we communicate, it's through the commons of digital space, which is largely controlled by him, and he gets from publicity or from us directly, if you buy new windows, it's rent. We are returning to rent. Now, I'm not wise enough to know How far does this go, and so on and so on? But I think the first thing is to clarify this. And I'm here extremely pragmatic. I hope we agree here, in the sense that there is an opposition emerging between this new mega corporate feudal class and leftists will crucify me for mm. this small productive capitalists. And maybe we should even rely on this and make tactical alliances with productive capitalists who also feel exploited today. I'm very open here. Yeah. I'm not dogmatic. Uh, Yanis, when we spoke to him, he said the, the same thing. Sorry, who? Yanis Varoufakis. When he ah, sp- you spoke with him. Yeah, he, yeah. Said, he said the same thing. And it's really interesting to me because if you pay attention to some of the smarter 
people on the US right. Yeah. They say that Trump represented a conflict between family capital yeah. and national slash global capital. Who is for you this martyr? I often, you know, when Steve Bannon gives a speech, I often tend to agree with first 20 minutes where he says quite reasonable thing. Then he goes crazy, you know, and he goes into all yeah. this stuff, no? But uh, you can see if you listen to Steve Bannon carefully, you can see why, how Trump gets this poor, disappointed, newly impoverished white uh, votes and so newly on. Newly impoverished, but also like you say, like asp aspirational family, petty bourgeois, who were a very volatile cohort. They were the bulwark, they were the, they were the sort of foundation of fascism in Europe, but they were also, you know, they were informing the anarchist movement of the early 1900s as well. That's so very important what you're saying now. People. Don't be, it's so fashionable. Lenin in his late years fell into this trap. When Soviet Union won the civil war against the whites in when, 21, 22, Foreign investments began, and Lenin made there, I think, a crucial mistake before his heart attack and so on. He was some mega big names, ultra corporate, had visited Soviet Union, and Lenin was so fascinated by them that he even said, no, big capital is our ally because the organization socialist is already there. We just have to take it over yeah. the way it is, just chop up the head. Mm. And he even then says this middle class, small capitalists and farmers, these are our enemies. Mm. That was the catastrophe. This was the way then to open up, pave a nice way to Comrade Stalin. Mm. <laughs> I mean, no? You mentioned Russia, Ukraine. What's the correct position for a leftist on Russia-Ukraine then? Because I, re I read an amazing piece in, the, in Time magazine recently. The average person on the front line for Ukraine now is 43 years old. There's clearly a military stalemate. Yeah. So what's, what's the correct position? It's extremely difficult, I think. But you know where I am a pessimist? I think that Ukraine needs our support at least to maintain this stalemate. I think it's too risky to say, okay, it's a stalemate, let's stop supporting Ukraine. But that's a permanent war. Well, so, it so it should be like Syria. Okay, but now I will, okay. But there's I, no easy options, I'm just saying. That's, yeah, what, yeah, that's yeah. what you're proposing. Yeah, but what would be, what is the alternative? Mm. If you simply stop supporting Ukraine. I'm not suggesting that. Yeah. I don't know. So if you, but you're saying rather than a negotiated settlement, which I agree, like it wouldn't be worth the paper it's written on, fine. But what you're proposing, it seems to me, is just a, a permanent low-level war between Russia and Ukraine forever then, which maybe is the best you can hope for. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. That's, that's what I am tempted to suggest. It's a very sad position, but I would just add something. I wrote two articles, one, one maybe it's here in another book, I don't know where, it's, uh, the title is The Two Colonization of Ukraine and so on and so on. Uh, Ukraine should use this situation to introduce a little bit more of trade union, social justice and so on. Horrors also happen in Ukraine, how much corruption is there, uh, uh, even concerning how you fight the war. For example, if you are a leftist in Ukraine today, 
You are in great danger that you or your party will be prohibited as potentially pro-Russian. Are they crazy? My God. Don't they read Putin? That's why. Maybe in this book, I like to quote Putin made a crucial speech in a, a, a year and a half ago when he started the war. Two days, 21st and 23rd of February. Did you notice that he repeatedly mentions, as a, in a critical way, only one name? Not Zelensky. Zelensky is unpronounceable. He will never even mention him. Lenin. He said the proper name of Ukraine should be Ukraine of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. He says Bolsheviks invented Ukraine and so on and so on. And then uh, uh, Putin makes an incredible cynical remark. He says... Uh, they want to decommunize Ukraine, uh, 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 Zelensky and his gang, whatever he calls them. And he says, okay, we will help them when we will enter Ukraine by, by abolishing Ukraine. We will finally decommunize it because Ukraine is a communist. <laughs> In you know what I mean? Do you know, I also quoted that the last speech, and I'm not a fan of Trotsky, he screwed it up with his incredible arrogance in the last years of his life, he allowed Stalin to take over. But do you know the last speech of Trotsky? No. Before he died. Sorry, written article. It's about Ukraine. And he said, full sovereignty to Ukraine, even if it means becoming fully a sovereign state. And then he said, what if you tell me but this goes against proletarian internationalism. And Trotsky gives a beautiful Marxist answer. He says, no, if you don't allow Ukraine to go alone, this is Russian nationalism. True proletarian internationalism is simply, you want a sovereign state, have it, and then we collaborate. You know, it's a beautiful... So don't forget about this. That's where I despise those... Uh, anti-Ukrainian leftist. Sorry, but the support for Ukraine in its tradition has much deeper leftist roots than rightist roots. So there's a few things going on at the moment which are hugely important. One is the demographic explosion in Africa, um, economic development, technological development of China, yeah. the geopolitical... Although I don't know to judge, sorry to interrupt you. Please. Uh, what is... I'm trying to, because I have many fans from China, if they, in China, if I ask them, they're afraid to answer the <laughs> digital space, internet controlled, of course, by that. but uh, how seriously do you take this idea that China is now approaching a big crisis? Um, well, car sales were up 10% in September. Um, I think it's facing a crisis, but I, the, the problem is obviously with people that are watching China, there are huge incentives to overstate yeah, yeah, yeah. the extent no, of yeah. problems. But that's why I'm interested and to know. But there are huge incentives to the Chinese state to lie as well. So it's, you know, I always joke that, you know, Western journalists have predicted 29 of the last two Chinese crises because this is just their tendency. So it's hard to say, 
But at the moment, you know, car sales were up 10% in September, 9%, I think, in August. Um, they had 4.9% quarterly growth in the third quarter. People say that's fake. Ah, they still, they still. Okay, well, people think... say it's fake, right? But then car sales is a pretty concrete. But the big thing is those, they have, according to official data, I read somewhere, so many empty apartments that the whole population of France and Germany combined could yeah. move there. Yeah, I think it's clearly, it's, it's slowing down. The question is how much. Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, energy use, uh, purchasing cars, exports, construction of fixed capital, I mean, it, it still seems like it's growing. You know, it's definitely in a different place to Europe. So I think I, I would, those predictions, I'd have a pinch of salt. But my question is- Yes, sorry. It's for, I know it's a really important yeah, question yeah. and I don't have the answer. I also <laughs> At least we are honest in this sense. That's the beginning of honesty today, yeah. that you don't pretend that you have answers to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're looking at a bunch of things are happening, regardless of whether or not China goes into recession yeah, yeah, next yeah, yeah. year. Clearly, power is shifting east because you can include ASEAN, you know, the East Asian countries too, and it's moving away from the West. Does the decline of the United States, does the potential end of US empire also mean the end of Western civilization? I hope not, but it can. Because I think, again, let me not talk too much and condense it. I think that the true horror, if you were to name me a spot on the earth about which what goes on there, I'm really worried. It would have been not the Middle East, not China, but United States. I think that this, can you imagine what dangerous thing this is? Uh, this uh, guy, my God, if they, I'm for death penalty, or I'll put it like this, I'm. if you're against death penalty, I am... Uh, I would agree with you, but I will before give you a list of people. After we kill these people, I agree with you. On their list, on the top, is Mike Johnson, you know, this mm. new Speaker of the House. We have a crazy sit situation in what sense? Let's be frank here. I have no illusions about democracy. The way we know it, it's maybe coming to an end, but I always emphasize in this book, in other books, that Democracy are not just the written rules. Democracy are also, there is no democracy without unwritten, silent rules that you have to obey and so on. And this is simply breaking down in the United States. You have now a guy who openly formulates disrespect for constitution, for parliamentary democratic system, and so on, and who is the Speaker of the House. You have Donald Trump openly advocating public disorder, and so on, and so on. So I think all this talk about the end of the American empire, it's predominantly a matter of what happens in America itself. Mm. And what really worries me is that in different forms, it's happening all around the world. Here in the UK, I simplify it up to the utmost. But you probably notice that you no longer have a leftist party. You have a moderate Moderate Conservative Party, it's called Labour Party, no? <laughs> yeah, they're the centre-right party now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have extreme freakish right-wingers, Yeah, you know? And uh, the problem is that these extremely freakish right-wingers are 
Maybe they will even continue. Who knows what will happen with Farage and so on and so on. You have in France similar tendency, in Germany, alternative for Germany growing and so on and so on. So uh, 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 I think it's the tendency today. It's towards, I'm still afraid to use the term, but towards a kind of, a, I don't have a concept. But a uh, 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 kind of a, a new form of uh, fascism, fascist capitalism. Not fascism necessarily in that Nazi sense, but in the sense of strong nation state. And now I will tell you something so that you see that I look at all the ways. You know that friend from China uh, 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 showed me something that the Chinese are terrified they don't want to render it public. When he was young and just took over the party, Mao Zedong met with Sun Yat-sen, the father of the Republic, who was just dying old. Yeah. And they have a conversation about what China could take from the West. And you know what's the conclusion of that one? Fascism. They claim that, that uh, democracy would be chaos in China, but fascism is ideal because it's national unity. China needs unity, but combined with economic development and so on. Mao and Sun Yat-sen agree with this. Now, desperately, they're trying to erase the, trace, the, the traces of it. This, this is a big secret of, I think, Chinese communism. This, it, there is even a direct link, again, with, with the fascist uh, tradition. And I think this is the main threat, which has different forms. Putin, India, Modi, one forum. Western European forum, American forum, even in Latin America, and so on. And now, to go to the end, I'm desperate because what is happening? Two days ago, when I had a debate at that uh, Royal Institute. <laughs> I was sitting on the same chair, maybe, no, it was that Faraday was <laughs> sitting. Uh, uh, a guy asked me a nice cynical question, but it deeply affected me. It was the right question. He said, but you are just saying to young people, there is no hope, we are fucked up. But he said, but look, you are old, you will soon die. It doesn't matter to you. But looked and he showed the whole, all the young people in their 20s, you can't say them to this, taking hope from them. Then I think I found a good counterpoint reply. It was this one. How do you mean this reproach? Do you mean it in a moral sense? In the sense of, even if you are right in your analysis, you should lie as if there is hope, not to disappoint young people? Or do you mean there is hope? And we didn't have time, we concluded with, to answer this, but now my answer here, the only one that I can offer is what Max Horkheimer, one of the fathers of Frankfurt School, said very nicely, that in these desperate times, the position of leftists should be pessimism in theory, optimism in practice. Pessimism, yes, our world is coming to an end, and we, I am afraid to 
provide an opposition, like, uh, sorry, a clear alternative, like some of my friends, that's what I, where I lost the thread before, are not only David Graeber, many others are neo-anarchists. No, I don't buy this. Because I think that the world is crying today for demanding global mechanisms. And it's too utopian to think, you know, from local initiatives, they will come together and so on. So I just grab any opportunity that I can. There is a movement here, a movement there. I have links in Philippines. I have links in Turkey. I, I supported Syriza here, there. But uh, I, I'm sorry to disappoint you or others. My advice or what to do is, let's say, if I were to be in government in a relatively prosperous Western country, what would be my advice or if I'm in government, my practice? A modest one. First comes my uh, moderately conservative side, you know. Uh, Yes, fight for freedom, but with a nonetheless leftist twist, which means this is the lesson of socialism that I still keep. Not this Stalinist bullshit, uh, 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 formal freedom versus actual freedom. No, freedom is a form, sorry. Freedom is formal freedom or it doesn't exist. But what socialism did taught us is that Freedom to be actual needs certain material conditions. For example, universal health care. I don't buy this right liberal argumentation, it enslaves you. No, life is much more free if you are aware that if I get seriously ill, cancer, blah, blah, some social state mechanism will take care of that. That, for example, in my country, but here also, in my country, one of the few moments of nostalgia for the old socialist Yugoslavia, it was more or less functioning, the public health care, or the same with education. To be really free, I think part of it is to have a fair chance on the market and so on to guarantee your health care, but now comes my communist side. I think that in answer to the crisis, in plural, that, uh, that we are approaching today, ecological, immigrant, and so on, war, we have to get ready to emergency states. They will come. And we had to build in mechanism of how we to deal with new emergency states, because if we don't do it, the right-wingers will do it in their own authoritarian way. I think it's absolutely crucial that there will be, for example, new ecological catastrophes. The story I repeat all the time, maybe you know it. My good friend, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, a great French theorist of catastrophe, was in Fukushima, or rather Tokyo, as a special delegate from the European Union, three days after the catastrophe. And he told me for one day, Japanese authorities were in a panic. It looked that they will have to evacuate the whole Tokyo area, 30 million people. Where to put them in a rational world order? The answer is clear. 
there are now with global warming waste uh, vast land which can which can uh, where hundreds of millions of people literally can settle in Siberia in old times there were such crises you solve them with the war today we cannot it means self destruction because of nuclear arms and so on we have to get ready for emergency state not i'm not saying be in a panic i'm just just saying get ready for example i'm here brutally realist and that's why again i'm attacked by some leftists when i say let's control immigration you know what so said i'm connected with people in countries from where are we aware that immigration is a great business the smugglers turn around over 10 billions per year and uh, those who come here are in great majority people who can afford it the really poor remain there so we should approach the problem in this way first how to prevent this i'm here very realist mm. one right winger in germany and i tend to agree said why don't we instead of farist try to build to construct factories in tunisia in northern africa to give them job there i'm very and i don't downplay i hate leftists who put all the troubles on the side of we are not ready to integrate them no what if they don't want to be integrated many immigrants it's a much more complex question which we should approach without any old fashioned either right wing or left wing uh, prejudices i find this so interesting because my my father's iranian Ah, really? Yeah, my father's Iranian. My God, I have so many friends in Iran. Yeah, uh, they are. You know, sorry, I'm uh, just. You know that why I admire Iran. Go on. It's totally different from other Arab countries. Yeah. It still has an incredible, uh, incredible civil society life philosophy they they translated there in spite of all the city politics up there they translated over 10 of my books is a lively intellectual right. country what they did with so you are lucky to have well, that's very kind of you yeah. but what he what he says yeah, is, tell me yeah he says and i think this is an interesting point you know i remember saying oh look there's these afghans are going to iceland and he said listen to me son no afghan wants to go to Iceland. No Afghan, you're born in this naturally fertile country, amazing history, beautiful weather, less than the last 40 50 years, but historically it was a very fertile I know. beautiful place. And you end up in a place this is not to, to not to besmirch Iceland, but yeah, yeah. you go to a place where you don't see the sun for three months. He yeah. said no Afghan grows up as a child and says, "You know what? I don't want to see the sun for three months and I want to live in minus 10 degrees C for six months." Yeah. And That's a really powerful point and I think a lot of I do think a lot of European liberals progressives don't understand that and yeah. I think there is this yeah. kind of strange it's not racism but like Euro, European superiority which is well of course they want to come here we're better well no many of them are coming because of war sanctions occupation yeah, capitalist underdevelopment but that seems completely absent from that conversation why The left has this analysis about why these places have been underdeveloped by global capital. Yeah. And yet when it comes to this topic, that goes out of the window. Why is that? This is another uh, bad consequence of I will give you a very simplified answer of 68 when uh, 
Marxism became cultural Marxism. In my orthodox Marxist term, it was recaptured by liberal culturalist ideology, you know. And I deeply, sorry, we don't have more time, I profoundly agree with you how precisely those Western liberals who pretend to be respectful towards the others are at a deeper level deeply patronizing on the others. Their whole value system, general frame, remains remains uh, the Western one. And this, this I, I, so I think, now I'll put it like this, the way liberals are acting now, letting immigrants in, I am for this, but in a more organized way, uh, and at the same time with this focus on culturalism, I'm afraid that the nightmare is that the result will be that what is already happening in Sweden, Denmark, now Germany, France, this anti-immigrant politics will explode. So don't you agree? Here I would totally agree with your father. I don't know how, but the problem should be solved there in those lands. Okay, we shouldn't now invade Iran, but we should at least reflect on how we also screwed it up with our politics, for example. Uh, tell this to your father, if you're... Please, <laughs> you, go on. You know, I'll send him this you, clip. You know, I wrote a crazy text 20 years ago. Uh, uh, give Iranian nukes a chance. <laughs> it was, I was uh, the, be, beloved by Iranian concern. But you know what was my point? Remember Iraq-Iran war. Saddam used the chance invaded Iran. The world was silent. This was a clear aggression. He wanted to grab the oil fields mm. in the south. United States at that point gave him, I read this in New York Times, gave him poisonous gases and satellite photos. There were no calls from peace. There were calls from peace only when Iran was pushing them, the Iraqis, back. So when there was a trial against Saddam and Iran, Iran official government said, listen, he did his greatest crime towards us. No, this was totally blocked. Iran just wanted to say, we also have a list of crimes by, against Saddam. You know, this, so uh, are we aware that this uh, then later on, the coup, the way they overthrew Saddam, the result is without that American intervention there, there wouldn't have been ISIS and so on and so on. How we screwed it up there. Let's at least learn not to repeat these mistakes. That would have been enough as the beginning. I, I remember idiots, Americans, after they occupied Iraq, their idea was as if we get rid of Saddam and then people will organize themselves into new democracy. No, it was a catastrophe. The result of the American occupation of Iraq was that first, Iranian influence grew, mm -hmm. plus most of the Christians emigrated from Iraq. Whatever you say about Saddam, and he was a nightmare. He wasn't a religious fundamentalist. Mm. He was relatively secular. You remember Tariq Aziz, his mm. foreign minister? Mm. He was a Christian. Mm. 
And all this got lost. You see here, a Hegelian analysis is needed. Didn't they know what they are doing? It's the same in Libya and so on. Even under Gaddafi, he was a nightmare, I know. But Libya was a relatively stable, half-welfare, very corrupted country. But what did they expect? You intervene and then, you know. So I totally agree here with your father. Don't simply think that uh, our, not only our land, but our notions of freedom and so on, don't think that we have the universal model. This is, for me, the lesson of 2001. It's the end of Fukuyama dream. 2001, I mean, uh, 9-11, no? Fukuyama dream was, we have liberal, democratic, capitalism is universal formula. Here and there, countries are, blah, blah, blah. And Fukuyama today, now, you know where he stands? He's a nice guy. I met him once. He's a nice man, yeah. 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 He is, at, I don't know where he is now, now, but three years ago, he was pro Bernie Sanders. He said, I got it wrong. Yes, I know. Slowly, slowly, we should do things like this. And all the best to your father. We need people like that. This is, you know what is so tragic? I'm serious. That at some level, what your father is saying and many others, isn't this in the best possible sense? Most Iranians, I may say that, by the way. Yeah. And they've come yeah. here as refugees. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, that it is in the best sense of the term, a common sense thing. It should be so evident, you know. And I have here, but I will stop now, so many similar examples from different countries where, for example, my favorite one is to re uh, end with a standard joke. By me. I was once in Missoula, Montana, giving a talk, and there were many so-called Native Americans, and they already hated the term because it's the political correct term, they told me Ooh, that this is so patronizing. What is the opposite of nature, culture? So they told me, we are na na uh, natural Americans and you are cultural Americans or what? And they gave me a wonder, they said we much prefer to be called Indians. Why? Because then this name is at, le at least a monument to white man's stupidity. When they came there, they thought they were in India. Native Americans and uh, Inuits, Eskimos, I admire them. They have such a wonderful nose for this pseudo-anti-racist pseudo patronizing attitudes towards so-called primitives. So to conclude, use it or not, my favorite thing that I said to some feminists years ago, and they applauded, I said, let to... Ladies, let's say you have a boyfriend who says, listen, there is a difference. I'm man more than you. Your duty is to wash my socks, to do the house. I said, if you have such a boyfriend, keep him, you may re-educate him. But if you have a boyfriend who says, I'm a Western imperialist. I uh, see nature only as an object of, uh, of exploitation. You as a woman has a more dialogic, organic attitude towards nature. Run away like crazy. <laughs> that, that guy will be the ruin for you. You know, this fake Western admiration for some 
wisdom of third world countries and so on. It's a fake. We'll end there. Slavoj, this was fantastic. Thanks for joining us on Downstream. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, in you know what sense? Like, uh, I'll now, this are my extremely perverse private jokes. I now prefer slowly Fanta to Coca-Cola. It's, del- it's delicious Fanta, right? Ah! The Germans got something Another right. Nazi collaborator. <laughs> you know what is the origin of Fanta. Yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hitler, 39, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't know this. Okay. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.